Morning, UCC. It's good to be back with you and back up here again. It's been good to have Jeremiah with us. I was excited for that. I got to be here last week. Uh, Jeremiah's a good friend of our family, and I was excited that things worked out where he could also be my pastor. I keep calling him pastor, and he keeps, whenever I see him, good morning, pastor. Just stop that. I say I was excited to have him here. I said that on purpose. I got here last week, and uh, he's talking about discipleship. So we moved into this fall preaching series on discipleship. And he's talking about what is it that disciples us. And he starts talking about having an iPod, and then a computer, and then an iPhone, and then an iPad. And he told Sarah he needed to stop before he got an iWatch. I'm literally like putting my iWatch on do not disturb as he says it. And I'm like, Oh. And then I was like, that's okay, that's okay, uh, I can deal with it, I can handle it. And then like his next example <laughs> is about letting sports teams disciple you and tell you what to wear. I'm, I'm wearing my Bengals jersey last week, hiding in the balcony. I came up after service, I'm like, listen, you got to call me out by name, just do it. <laughs> um, good golly. Uh, but no, and it's, it, it is. It's a really, and the thing about that wrestling match is it's such a dynamic wrestling match. It's not static. It's not easy to just, because we live, we live in a world. And there's been lots of, a gradient scale of responses to this tension of what disciples us. So much so that, that certain, like, you know, expressions or movements will end up separating the separatist approach to life. And it's really tricky to navigate all of that, isn't it? And I don't think there's a right spot on the gradient scale. Like, this is where Jesus wants us. I think it's all this dynamic thing about where has Jesus called us as individuals, us as a church, us as a people living in Cincinnati or anywhere else that the body of Christ might be. It's such a weird, tricky thing, and so it's a super, super good question to, to put towards the beginning of a journey in a, in a sermon series on discipleship. And so he brought us right up to that question about what is discipling us. And then he obviously made the connection to the thing that should be discipling us is God is Jesus, is that conversation. And it is unbelievably dynamic, it's unbelievably difficult tension to navigate, and we fail like all the time. And then it's not just fail or pass, but it's like all the stuff in between, the messy gray that you all, and I say you all because it's easy as a, as a clergy, as a missionary, as a pastor, like you all go to work, most of you, in secular spaces, where this living in this, this tension is really tricky. Can I get an amen? Like, it's not just like, follow Jesus or don't. It's like, well, what does it mean to follow Jesus in this space? What does it mean to make those decisions? What, is that, what does that look like? What is that? Anyway, so you, you have that conversation and that dynamic. And so you want to be discipled by, by God and by Jesus. But, and then you, like, leave that. And you left it hanging right where I was assigned to pick up, which is, okay, but what does that look like to be discipled by God? To, be, to make sure that God and Jesus and what the kingdom is up to in the world, that's the thing that's discipling us. That's a really abstract, esoteric idea, yeah? Be discipled by God. Okay, but here's the thing about Joe Burrow. <laughs> he's actually a, like a dude. Like he's, he's like walking around in flesh and blood. It's easy to act like and to imitate Joe Burrow. He may not be walking around if the old line doesn't figure stuff out right now. <laughs> Got to get that figured out. But nevertheless, I'm not preaching about the Bengals this morning. But here's this verse that Jeremiah 
suggested for sermon today. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself us up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Be imitators of God. Clear it up. And it's this beautiful poetic call that Paul gives the Ephesian church. Imitate God. Be God in the world. Show the world what God is like. But when you think about imitation, when you think about what is discipling us, when you think about the process, it is easier to imitate Apple. Apple tells me what to buy. They just had an Apple event. I'm really showing my cards here today, aren't I? <laughs> just last month, they had their Apple event. My new iPhone's on the way. It's easy. They tell me what to do, what to buy, what to use, how it works together. It's easy to imitate Joe Burrow. It's easy to it, imitate God. God's not even like me. How am I supposed to imitate? And so the next day, well, the verse doesn't end there. Be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loves. So the verse doesn't just say be imitators of God, period. The, the verse goes on to give us a little bit of direction. What does it mean to be imitators of God? Well, it means to live in love because that's what Christ is like. And really hidden in this verse is this direction, this pointedness to Jesus. You have imitate God, which seems like such an abstract, esoteric, what does that even mean and look like, to imitate Jesus. Well, that gets a little bit better because Jesus was walking around in flesh and blood. He did have an earthly ministry. First John will say it this way. Whoever says, I abide in him, ought to walk just as he walked. It's one of my favorite verses. I say it on my trips to Israel and Turkey with my students all the time. Every day I'll say, repeat after me, whoever claims to be in him must walk as Jesus walked. In fact, let's do it here. Repeat after me. Whoever claims to be in him must walk as Jesus walked. Let's do it one more time. Whoever claims to be in him must walk as Jesus walked. And, and it does take it a little bit from the abstract and make it a little bit more concrete. That's helpful. Jesus was a human being that walked around on earth related to people. He had dinner with a certain kind of people. He interacted with folks in a certain kind of way. He had a certain kind of posture. He engaged with self-righteousness in a particular... I can, I can start to imagine much more clearly what it's like to imitate. And, and I think of a quote we used earlier this year. It was earlier in 2022, and I used a quote. I had it up on the slide um, from Brian Zahn earlier this year. It's one of my favorite quotes, one of my favorite theological quotes. He says, God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There was never a time when God was not like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but now we do. I love that quote. I'll say it again. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There was never a time when God was not like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but now we do. I think sometimes theologically we think like Jesus was like the nice parts of God. Like the nice parts of God poured into a Jewish rabbi in the first century, and he was like part, but God, God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There was never a time when God was not like Jesus. Not in the book of Joshua, not in the book of Deuteronomy, not in the book of Genesis, not in the book of Second Kings. God has always been like Jesus. In fact, that's what God was doing in Jesus. That's what Jesus was showing us. This is what God is like. So when Paul says in Ephesians, be imitators of God as beloved children, we can truly think about 
Whoever claims to be in him must walk as Jesus walked. In that we will be imitators of God. So it does make it more concrete, and yet, if you are paying attention to that, do you feel any better about that? <laughs> you just have to be like Jesus, everybody. Let's pray. No, I, uh, wait a minute, what? So all of a sudden, I don't feel like, okay, you took it from the abstract to the concrete, and I still feel less like I'm ever going to pull this off. The way that Jesus loved, the way that Jesus lived, we make a big deal in Christian thought about how Jesus was perfect. I don't, I don't disagree with that. So, but that makes this imitation of Jesus thing pretty tricky. And this imitation thing is a dominant idea. What is discipleship? Discipleship is imitation. Some 17 times in the New Testament, we bump into this. I, I, did, a, I did a lesson with a bunch of college students in uh, Fort Myers, Florida, maybe a few years ago before covid and we went through all like 17 references of follow my example, imitate me as I imitate Christ, be imitators of God, whoever claims to live in him is walking. There's some 17 references in your New Testament alone to imitation. It's a very, very dominant theme in your New Testament. And I, I wanted to look at why I think it's a dominant theme, and I think kind of buried in the why and the history and the fun little details that we're going to go over, I think right at the end there's like a, there's like a thunderous, profound, I don't know if I'll pull it off, but there's like a profound reflection point to take away from this idea of become imitators of God. So I want to talk about this idea of discipleship. What does discipleship mean for the world of the Bible? We toss around the world a lot today, like discipleship this and discipleship that and disciple-making movements and disciple-planted churches and disciple-disciple-disciple. We use discipleship for all kinds of things in the church today. It's, a, it's, like, it's like the 20, 20th century, 21st century buzzword. But what did discipleship mean for a Jewish rabbi in the first century who had 12 disciples? Because what they're doing is different than what, what most of us are doing at Starbucks on Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Thank you for chuckling at that. That is a joke. Like, those are different things, right? So what is that? What is that context? Well, the Jews brought discipleship back with them from Babylon. Discipleship wasn't a thing that existed in the days of David. Discipleship wasn't a thing that existed in the days of Samuel. Discipleship wasn't, not in the biblical sense, discipleship wasn't a thing that you found on the lips of Moses as he sat at the bottom of Sinai giving his people Torah. It might have been buried in there somewhere, but discipleship as an actual thing that they understood didn't exist until after Babylonian captivity. It's good to remember that. It's good to remember that Judaism evolves and changes throughout the centuries. That the Judaism of David is not the Judaism of Samson. The Judaism of Samson is not the Judaism of Moses. None of those are the Judaism of Jesus because Judaism is evolving and learning and growing. And by the time you get to the story of Jesus, which is important for us as followers of Jesus, Judaism has continued to grown, it has grown and evolved. They went off to Babylonian captivity. I'm not sure if you think what, you, what your thoughts might be about that. That was not fun. They never wanted to go back there again. It had echoes of Egypt, being slaves in Egypt, being captives in exile. They said, we never want to go back to Babylon again. Why are we here, the Jews asked themselves. I'm summarizing greatly. Why are we here? And the Jews said, well, we're here because we didn't follow God's law. Okay, that's, that's good. We're all, but why didn't we follow God's law? In large part because we didn't know God's law. You remember the story. Remember how they're cleaning the temple and find the book of the law in a closet? Oh, hey, check this out. It's like they lost the Bible. And they didn't have a printing press. 
I left my Bible at home this morning, which is truly ironic for this message. <laughs> but they didn't have a printing press. They didn't have a Bible that you could hold. They didn't have 17 of them on the bookshelf at home. They didn't have an app on their phone. So it was easy if they weren't going to commit themselves to it and devote themselves to it. It would be easy to lose it in a, in a temple closet and have to find it during spring cleaning. Right? And so they, they, they realized we went off to captivity because we didn't know God's laws. And if you don't know God's laws, you're never going to be able to follow God's laws. How will you ever follow God's laws if you don't know them? And so they said, never again, never again will we ever forget God's law. And so while they're sitting in Babylon as exiles in captivity, they end up creating something called synagogue. You've heard of this, yes? And when I say they create synagogue, I don't mean they built buildings. I meant they started a new assembly of people. Because that's how these things always start. It's actually just a group of people. You don't build buildings until later. And so they start synagogue, which is groups of people that are committed and devoted to making sure that they get God's laws and they get God's texts inside of them. Because never again. And this, this synagogue comes with an educational system that they bring back home. And when they, when they replant in places like the Galilee, you've heard of these towns, say them after me, uh, Nazareth, Cana, Bethsaida, Capernaum, Chorazin, Magdala, Gamla, Gennesaret. These, some of these names ring a bell? It's the world of Jesus. See, Jesus is raised and born into and spends three years working within a worldview that's come back from Babylon with synagogue, and they're deeply committed to making sure they never, ever forget the words of God again. It comes with an education system. Because again, you don't have version app on your phone. You don't have a copy of the Bible. That you get. If you're going to know the Bible, what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to know it. You're going to have to know it. There's no other option. And so they build an educational system that's taught how to... Me they want their children to memorize the scripture. And I'm now realizing that it's actually a big deal that I don't have my Bible. Does anybody have a Bible that they want to hand me? I thought that it was good. Yeah. That will not work in this instance. Thank you very, very much. All right, so let's go through the schooling system that they created. The first stage of Jewish schooling, and again, what do we know historically? Not a ton. We know it just enough to have an idea of what's going on. The Jewish world itself will speak into this. But as far as what's happening in the first century, we know far more what happens in Talmud and after so second century and after than we do before second century. All the historical details are debated and kind of a muddled mess, but we do know some things. So just keep that in mind before you go like, we know this. Well, we don't know, know a lot of things. We know some things. And there's a difference between no, no, and no. Does that make sense? That's really technical seminary language. Okay, the first stage of Jewish schooling is what we know the most about. It was called Bet Sefer. Say Bet Sefer. House of the Book or House of Learning, was from five to nine years old. So we're talking kindergarten to third grade. And they do some general education, but their job as kindergartners through third graders is to memorize the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy committed to memory. There you go. Now I don't know what your third grader is doing, <laughs> but that's intense. Okay? 
Now, what do I mean by memorize? I mean memorize, because this is the only way that you're going to know the Bible. Even your synagogue in your village, if you're from a place like Chorazin, you don't even have the whole Tanakh probably in your village until much, much later. In the days of Jesus, you might have a scroll of Deuteronomy, maybe a scroll of Isaiah, maybe Obadiah. But if you want to read Leviticus, you're going to have to go down to Bethsaida. They've got Leviticus. Which means you've got to know it. You've got to know, know, know it. You've got to absolutely have it memorized. So when I say memorize, I mean memorize. In fact, if you wanted to move on from Bet Sefer to the next stage of Jewish schooling, you would have to know the Torah so well that the rabbi could start quoting anywhere in the book, not tell you where, stop mid-sentence, point to you, and have you pick up flawlessly without hesitation and keep quoting until he told you to stop. Let's play. He has shed blood, and he shall be cut off from the people. This is in order that the... You see, this is always fun to do, because we, we typically find ourselves, I think most of us would say we find ourselves in an evangelical world, an evangelical world that loves to say the Bible says. The Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. We're Christians. We're evangelicals. Bible, 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 Bible. We don't know the Bible. We don't. We know about the Bible. We know what somebody else decided the Bible says. We don't know the Bible. So even the ones that weren't good enough, because most of them weren't good enough, at least 90% of the educated population never makes it out of Bet Sefer. They go back home and they start doing their father's trade. They start, they start plying their father's trade, and they go back home. 90% don't make it. At least, some scholars would say 99%. So 90% is conservative. 90% don't make it. But even they would know their Bibles way better than all of us in this room combined. You'd have some nine-year-old going, that's not what it says. <laughs> and we'd be all like, what book did he just quote of? Anybody know what book I'm in? Do you have a one in five chance? Be damned. <laughs> Does that make sense? Like, this is intense. They came back, see, and this is the world of the Pharisees. So before you just read the Gospels, and you're like, those stupid Pharisees, do you understand why the Pharisees are who they are? I don't want to go back to Babylon again, do you? I want to know the word. And Jesus never critiques that about them. He only critiques what they've lost in the midst of that pursuit. If you're good enough, if you're good enough, you'll move on to the next stage of Jewish schooling, which this is where it starts to get really muddy historically. I'm going to call it Beit Midrash. It's debated. Say Beit Midrash. It's going to be from about 10 to 13 years old, give or take, whatever. You're going to memorize. Now remember, this is the best of the best. So they're already good at memorizing, and they probably already got a head start. But you're going to memorize the rest of Tanakh. That's the rest of the Old Testament. Yes, thank you. Committed to memory. By the way, this is what Jesus is doing, because every time Jesus teaches, what is he quoting? Old Testament. And they're not jumping on BibleGateway.com. They're going, oh, I know that. That's from, that's, from, that's from Obadiah. That's from Joel. Peter does this at Pentecost. He quotes Joel. They're not like, is that in the Bible? They're like, Joel, got it, chapter 2. They, they got it memorized, right? So, and at this point, you're dealing with certainly less than 10%. Some scholars will say less than 1%. I would say, 
I would say the typical estimate that I would lean towards is probably more closer to 2 or 3% of the educated population moves into Midrash. It's debated. Put your number wherever you feel comfortable with. But if you're the best of the best of the best, this teaching comes from Ray, by the way. I know you've probably heard it from somebody else, but he got it from Ray. Sorry, we can talk about that later. But Ray taught me this. Um, it's not my material, is what I'm trying to tell you. It, if you thought you're the best of the best of the best, you would apply for Beit Talmud. Say Beit Talmud. Right about the time, they didn't have bar mitzvahs back then, but right about the time your bar mitzvah is taking place, right about the time you're going into the temple to, to lay your hands on the Paschal Lamb at Passover, about 13 years old. When that happens, you can go and apply to follow a rabbi. Now, only the best of the best of the best are going to do this. And you're going to have your favorite rabbi. To this very day, by the way, I was actually in Jerusalem just, I don't know, five years ago, and I was buying an ice cream bar at a convenience store, and I, I went up to the checkout counter, and there was a rack sitting right next to the cashier, and it had trading cards. It was rabbi trading cards. So the same way that we think about LeBron James is how they think about rabbis today. This is how they revere this. This is what discipleship means to them. And so on the back where his stats would be, you have like his best quotes, like his core teachings. Because you want to be like the rabbis. That's greatness for them. Not professional athletes, unfortunately not Joe Burrow, but Rabbi Shmuel. I want to be like Shmuel. Did you hear his, did you hear his der Shah last week? Brilliant. Now, a rabbi, you would, you would apply to follow a rabbi, and a rabbi might look at you and say, well, just come sit at my feet for a while. Just come to class, and I'm going to watch you. I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to see what you know. I'm going to see how well you know your text. I'm going to see how well you know my teaching. I'm going to see how I'm just going to watch you. And if I think that you're good enough, if I think that you have what it takes to become just like me or better than me, I will look at you one day and eventually say, lech acharai. Say, say lech acharai. Come follow me. And if you get to hear those words, you are getting invited to be what's called a Talmud. Say Talmud. A Talmud leaves what they're doing and goes and lives with the rabbi for the next three to five years. They follow the rabbi around. They don't go home and pack their bags. They don't go home on the weekends. They follow the rabbi around. Talmud. If you say it in the Arabic, it's Talib. Say Talib. If you want to put it in the plural, it's Taliban. Say Taliban. Now that's not a commentary on Islam at all. What I'm trying to communicate to you is the fiery passion and conviction with which you follow. A Talmud is not a student. A Talmud is somebody who wakes up every single morning with a fire in their belly to be just like their rabbi. In fact, here's the goal. The goal is to know what the rabbi knows in order to do what the rabbi does for the reason that the rabbi does them, in order to be just like your rabbi in his walk with God. To know what the rabbi knows in order to do what the rabbi does, in order to be just like, the whole thing is about imitation. I don't even know how I'm doing on time. I remember this one story. <laughs> uh, I was following Ray in 2008. It was my first trip to Israel. I didn't know anything about any of this stuff. And Ray's like, I'm going to teach you about discipleship. I'm like, okay, let's do it. I know everything there is to know about discipleship. It's church multiplication strategies. Get people involved in small groups. Let's go. Thank you for laughing at all my jokes this morning. And I remember following him, and we got to a point in, in the trail, and there's a barbed wire fence. 
and he gets down on his belly and he scoots underneath the barbed wire. And we are, I'm like about four or five people behind him, and if you look down the way, about 20 feet down where the doors are, like the fence has just fallen over. And so we're like, we look at each other and we're like, and so we kind of like hurry around. We don't wanna wanna take up his time, so we kind of like run around. We run around the fence. He walks for another three quarters of a mile, turns around, does this lesson that I'm teaching you now, and says, by the way, just so you guys know what it's like to be a disciple, I'm going to wait while you all go back, 54 of us, you're all going to go back, crawl under the fence, and I'll be here when you get back. Because if you're a disciple, you do everything your rabbi. He picks up a rock, you pick up a rock. He goes under the fence, you go under the fence. Because you assume that there's a reason why the rabbi is doing everything. It's about imitation. Be imitators of God as dearly beloved children. Whoever claims to be in him must walk as Jesus walked. There is so much that we got to talk about this. Luckily, I get to preach twice in October, so we got more time to work. Thank you for laughing at that, too. Here, here, here's, here, this is why, and some of you have heard this before, so my apologies. This is why Peter gets out of the boat to walk on water. Jesus comes out to them. They're rowing. They've been out on the sea all day. They left from Gennesaret, and they're rowing to Bethsaida, which, by the way, is right down the coast. They're not going across the lake. Jesus just told them to get in a boat and row where they could walk in literally 40 minutes. 40-minute walk, they'd be there. And they're like, why do we have to get in a boat? He's like, get in the boat now. So they get in a boat, and they're going like like straight down the shore and just having a dog of a time doing it, right? And Jesus is, we're, we're told that Jesus is watching them. And we think he's like got his God goggles on somewhere, right? He's just watching them. He's up on the hillside watching them row, waving at them. <laughs> Doing great, guys. You've made it 20 yards. You only got a quarter of a mile left to go. Just up there watching them. He then, at, in the middle of the night, they're struggling. He goes down the hillside and walks on the water as if he's going to pass them by. Because he's going across the lake, they're going down the shore, he's going to walk right across them, they think he's a ghost, he's like, I'm not not a ghost, it's me, and Peter says, if it's really you, tell me to walk on water, because if there's one thing I know about Jewish discipleship, it's that you wouldn't walk on water unless you want me to be walking on water, and that's why you're a ghost, and Jesus calls his bluff, good idea, Peter, come on out, and so Peter gets out on the water, and it works. And he sees the wind and the waves, and then he starts to sink. And I, I know you've probably heard this. And I, I, I was asked the question that day in Israel, who does Peter, Peter lose faith in? And we're good Christians, and so we all say, Jesus. But Jesus isn't sinking. Jesus isn't sinking. Peter doesn't lose faith in Jesus. Peter loses faith in himself. And so Jesus grabs him, as he sinks in the water, pulls him into the boat, and says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Which means that, that, that rebuke has nothing to do with his theological faith in Jesus. At all. It means that when he jerks his face up to make their eyes meet, he's, what he's saying is, why didn't you believe in yourself? I did. If you couldn't have done this, Peter, I would have never called you out on the water. So why don't you believe in yourself? So to quote one author who heard this same lesson of mine, I've been told my whole life to believe in Jesus. What nobody ever told me is that Jesus believes in me. 
I've been told my whole life to believe in God. What nobody spent much time telling me is how much God believes in me. And so I go back to the question when I got started into all this history, which is when you hear the call to be imitators of Jesus, we all go, well, I can't do that. And no, you will not do it perfectly. That's not the point. Hear the words of Jesus. You did not choose me, I chose you. You didn't come to me and apply to be my disciple. I saw God at work in you. I came to you on the beach and said, come follow me. And you dropped your nets because I just gave you the opportunity to do what less than 1% of people get the opportunity to do. And if I wouldn't have seen God at work in you, I would have never called you. I know you can do this. And so for all of us that hear the call to imitation and you think to yourself, there's no way. Hear the words of Jesus, there is way. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, you can absolutely imitate God. Here's this verse one more time. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And live in love as Christ loved us, uh, loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. You will make numerous mistakes, so many. By the time you get home, you'll, you'll have made a bunch. But you can be imitators of God. As you can look like Jesus. Whoever claims to live in him, to be in him, must walk as Jesus walked. There's so many more things to talk about. The how and what to do practically and what about the 1% and all that. We'll talk about that some more before we're done in October, but we can do this. We can be like Jesus. We can. Whoever claims to be in him must walk as Jesus walked. Let's pray. Jesus, um, we do believe that if the world needs to see anything, anything, if there's anything worth seeing, if there's anything that's worth exalting, projecting, showing, if there's anything worth getting right, if there's anything worth pursuing, it's you. Like if there's anything the world needs to see, it's you. It's not us. It's not our churches, and it's you. What the world needs to see is Jesus incarnated in, in all of our lives as bodies of, of people, as individual bodies. Like, people need to see Jesus in us, through us, around us. Would we be those things that show the world what God... Could we, could we imitate you? Could we invite the same people to our parties that you invited to your parties? Could we forgive the way that you forgave? Could we hang out with the people that don't fit, that don't color inside the lines, they don't fit in all the boxes, they don't, could we find all those spaces and occupy that? Because that's what you did when you came as Jesus. That's what you did over and over and over and over again. Would we confront our own self-righteousness? Would we live the Sermon on the Mount? Would we show the world what, what, what you're like in our love and our joy and our peace and our patience and our kindness and our goodness and our faithfulness and gentleness and self-control as the Spirit bears that fruit in our lives would people see you? God, we love you. Thanks for loving us. May we live in love as Christ did and gave his life up as a fragrant aroma pleasing to God.
We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.